if you could begin making your way back to your seats. And as you do, grab your Bibles. I, uh, I don't believe any of you turned to 1 Corinthians 15 when I was just reading from that. But if you did, you don't have any more turning to do. But if you didn't, you do have some turning to do. And here is our text this morning. And um, our screen is back up and running, but as I described it to Damien earlier this morning, it is, it is tenuously functional at this point. And we had to tell Ryan Bedell, uh, be very, very careful to not get anywhere near the wire. Um, so there's a little, still a little work to be done figuring out exactly what's going on. So quite frankly, I don't know if it will cut out this morning or not. And I'm not looking at that screen, I'm looking at this one. And if that one cuts out, this one shouldn't, unless we have a bigger issue than we realize at this point. Um, So we're just going to go with it and see how far we get. Amy, you're pointing, did it? Okay. All right. All right. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19. We're going to skip a chunk and then pick up in 29. And what it is that Paul does in these 34 verses of 1 Corinthians 15 is he begins to summarize and begin to draw to a conclusion this letter that he's written, providing 14 chapters of instruction and correction that was very specifically directed at behavior, at beliefs, at actions, at attitudes, at relationships. the, the, The church of Corinth was a bit of a hot mess. And if you ever want to just be encouraged about maybe some of the stuff that you find yourself fighting day in and day out, the book of 1 Corinthians does that. Because these people had some things going on that that are just, quite frankly, uh, a mess. And Paul gives them very specific instructions and encouragement and correction. And he gets to chapter 15 and he says, now I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to I take everything that I've just said, and as we begin to land the plane on this letter, and as we begin to, as we begin to just kind of summarize and get our minds back wrapped around what it is that we're actually doing, I want us to think about the gospel and who Jesus is and what he came to do and what now is true of him. And he says, look, he, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, and he appeared to a whole bunch of people. And he's in the business of transforming lives. And then in verse 12, he he shifts subtly. And he begins to provide again some correction. But it's a little different in the fact that we, we don't get the sense that there's widespread error in the church at this point. It's more as if Paul is addressing what could become widespread error what might be creeping in, what some, as he uses the word, are currently believing, maybe teaching, but there's not necessarily the implication there of teaching. It, quite frankly, Paul might even just be addressing some, what I will call, cultural scoffing. And just as the church in Corinth relates to the city in Corinth, and the culture in Corinth, and as people get saved out of that culture, and they begin to come to the church, what, what, are, they, what are they bringing with them in terms of ideas and philosophies and worldviews and values and priorities? I mean, it doesn't have to, well, we don't have to pull the audience to know that when you get saved, all of those things do not immediately or instantly change. 
you actually begin this process of your values being reoriented to the values of Christ and your priorities being reoriented and your, your understanding about life being reoriented around what the scriptures say about these things. And so, quite frankly, it could just be that there were saved people from Corinth that began then attending this church, bringing with them just what Corinthians believed. And that would fit true with most of how this letter has taken shape. And so what Paul does is he begins to address this, this creeping, which I don't believe is a full-blown false teaching at this point. I think it's something he subtly sees on the horizon that he wants to address before it becomes a big issue. What he does is he, he, he asks them to think through the implications of the conclusion they have. Now the conclusion they have is that once you die, that's all there is. And it wasn't so much that they were denying the resurrection of Jesus as they were denying or speculating or hypothesizing or wondering, we're not real sure, the resurrection of everyone else. And Paul takes that idea and he takes it to task and he does so by outlining in our verses we'll look at this morning, ten different things that would be false, or ten different implications to consider if Jesus hasn't risen from the grave. Now, to maybe help us unpack a little bit of just how radical that idea was of somebody rising from the dead, and or other people dying and then rising from the dead, I mean, we don't have to go far to just know that within our experience, that's not something that I've ever had personal witness of. None of us are going down to Green Hill Cemetery thinking that the tombs or that the graves are going to become empty. And it's not, it's not hard to understand how some in this church found themselves where they found themselves. And one scholar even said this, that Christianity was born into a world where its central claim was known to be false. Many believed the dead were just non-existent. And outside Judaism, nobody believed in the resurrection. And so it's not hard to see why the Corinthians, who are Greeks living in a Roman colony, would have had some questions about this, or some would have had some strong ideas about this. And quite frankly, to just be fair to the Corinthians, the disciples didn't even get it. John tells us, that after Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't understand it. And then John gives us this little commentary that said, we didn't quite understand that he was supposed to rise from the dead. Despite the fact that Jesus told them at least three times, I'm going to rise from the dead after three days. They still didn't get it. So I want to be fair to the Corinthians. But I want us to also consider the implications of whether or not the tomb is occupied. And if the tomb is still occupied, Paul says and walks through and outlines several very, very significant implications that arise out of that conclusion. So before we go any further, let's pray. We'll hop into the text. We've got a lot of ground to cover. He gives ten implications. He follows it up with three commands at the end, so if that sounds like a 13-point sermon, it is, and so we got some work to do, 
Let's pray. We'll hop into it and try to make sense of it. Well, God, we do pray that you would just add, that you would you would be our teacher this morning, and that your Spirit would would work in a, in a powerful way to give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to understand. There's some tremendous implications that arise out of the idea of a tomb that's still occupied. Help us to get our minds wrapped around what it is that you say and and the implications that that would create. God, we thank you that the tomb is not occupied. And I don't think our culture is that different than the culture in Corinth. In some ways, outside of Christianity, it's not far-fetched at all to find people that will say that the dead just die. And they stay dead, and that's it. There's no existence afterwards. It was, it was one life. And so, God, there's not that far of a difference between these first century people and us as 21st century people. So we just pray and ask that your word would do in us what you intended it to do in them. And that you would meet with us in a special way here now. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, look at verse 12. There Paul begins to introduce the idea that he's going to speak to and write about here Next, there he says, now if Christ is proclaimed or preached as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So there's the question, there's the central idea that he's going to begin writing about. So it's, it's, hey, everything I just wrote about, how Jesus lived and he died and he was buried and he rose and then he appeared to a whole bunch of people that you can go and interview, including myself. We've been preaching this gospel to you. That's where Paul began the book of 1 Corinthians. I, I, I aim to know nothing amongst you, Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. Who Jesus is, what he has come to do, this good news gospel that he has given us to proclaim. Now, how is it, as we preach Christ is raised, some of you will say there is no resurrection of the dead. It's not so much that they were denying that Jesus rose from the dead. They were questioning or maybe denying that there was a resurrection for anyone else. And Paul begins to take issue with that. And one commentator and scholar said this, that everything for Christianity, everything for you and I who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, stands and falls on the truth of the assertion that God raised Jesus from the dead. Everything. See, we're, we're, we're not so much Good Friday people as we are Resurrection Sunday people. And you can't have one without the other, and both are incredibly significant. But if all Jesus did was die and did not rise again, 
his death meant nothing. The manger means nothing. You should have slept in this morning. You should have made pancakes for your family. You should not have given money. You've wasted your time. You've wasted your dollars. If the tomb is still occupied, Jesus himself is a liar. I have here on the screen the passages in the New Testament where it is specifically talked about and the word raised is specifically used. That's the word Paul uses here. If the dead are not raised... So I just did a quick little word study. Where else does this word raised show up in the New Testament? How many places does it show up in the New Testament? This does not include the word resurrection. That would have been another word study. The list would have grown longer and it would have not have all fit on one screen. Okay, and I will tell you, I very, very briefly thought, wow, it would be a good idea if we just all read these verses together, right? But we've been there and we're probably not ever going to do that again. So, um... But there's significance to the number of passages if there's no resurrection of the dead. Because the very first thing that Paul says is in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. Yet you can't have one and not the other. You can't say, well, yeah, we, we, will, we will accept that Jesus rose again and we, we will buy in the witnesses that you supply to us and the 500 people, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and all of the apostles and the people that Jesus appeared to. Like, we're going to accept that. The tomb is empty. But that's all there is. And Paul says, you can't have one without the other. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the grave. And Jesus himself is a liar, as is a significant section in portions of the New Testament. The idea of the resurrection, both for Christ and for others, is a significant, significant theme throughout the New Testament. And Paul begins then in verse 14 outlining the implications he wants to put forth as a result. If you believe there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, if that tomb is not empty, if it is still occupied, what takes place? What are the implications? Verses 14 and 15, Paul gives us three implications that arise if we believe that the tomb is still occupied. And these implications are the exact opposite of everything that he had just outlined in verses 3 to 11. Last week we looked at what he wrote there in verses 1 to 11, but specifically in verse 3, he says he's talking about the gospel. I delivered to you as first importance... What I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared. He appeared because he was raised. And what Paul begins in outlining the very first three implications he puts forth. If we believe or conclude the tomb is still occupied. Is the exact opposite of everything that he just outlined in verses 3 to 10 regarding this gospel message that the Corinthians received as Paul delivered 
to them. The first, he writes, is the very action of preaching is in vain. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Everything that he delivered to them is in vain. That word vain is going to show up again. It means empty. It means devoid of value. It means pointless. It means that everything that I'm doing in these very moments as I'm speaking to you and aiming to explain the scriptures to you is absolutely pointless if the tomb is still occupied. But it's not just my words that are pointless. It's your faith that is also pointless. Preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. It's the same word. It's pointless. It's empty. It's devoid of value. You should have slept in this morning. You should have found a way to get yourself a nice big breakfast and you should have saved all your money. There's a better use for it if the tomb is still occupied. Good grief, just invest it. The tomb is still occupied. Everything we do here is pointless. Thirdly, he writes in verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. The third thing that he puts forward is that the apostles have misrepresented God. That word misrepresented, it's literally pseudo-witnesses. We use the word pseudo in our English language to just describe something that's false. It's exactly what Paul identifies himself and these other people in verses 3 to 10 that he outlines as being witnesses and authorized representatives and messengers of this gospel. If the tomb is still occupied, the apostles and everybody that has ever proclaimed that Jesus has been raised has misrepresented God. The penalty for misrepresenting God, if we just took an Old Testament law approach, is death. To be a false witness is to incur the death penalty for doing so. Paul's just saying, look, we, we told you that it was according to the scriptures that Jesus Christ raised, rose from the grave. And if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, and we're false witnesses. Everything he writes in these first three implications is the exact opposite of what he wrote in verses 3 to 10 regarding what the content of the good news gospel is and the very people that Jesus appeared to that then went on proclaiming, preaching his resurrection. In verse 16, we have a kind of another summary moment here. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. It's very similar to what he wrote in verse 13. 
And then he will launch in verse 17 into another set of implications regarding if the tomb is still occupied. And just notice here that the beginning of verse 17 is identical to the beginning of verse 14. There's some parallelism in this passage as Paul writes it. You've got verse 13 and 16 being almost identical, at least conceptually identical. And then you have verses 14 and 17 starting with the same five or six words And then he gives us another set of implications. If the tomb is still occupied. And this second set of implications that he gives us is the exact opposite of everything that he has taught in chapters 1 to 4. In a a big picture, big umbrella sense. I mean, if we're going to paint with a really big brush. Paul is saying, look, if Jesus is still in the grave. Everything I have said is false. And he gives us the fourth implication there in verse 17. Your faith is futile. It's different than in vain. The word vain meant empty, meant devoid, meant meant worthless, pointless. Here the idea is your faith is lacking truth. It's powerless. It's futile. It has nothing to offer. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.20, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. Now the wise there that he's writing about is the wise in the world's definition of wisdom. It's the wise that are accepted by culture wise. He's not talking about the wisdom of God. He's talking about the wisdom of man here. And he says in quoting the Lord, The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. The Lord knows the thoughts of the people that claim to be wise, but though they are actually fools, and he knows them to actually be fools, and their claims are Worthless. They're devoid of truth. They are useless. They are powerless unless the tomb is still occupied. And then every one of those claims that the wise have made isn't necessarily true, but it's not futile. If the tomb is still occupied, it's actually us and our faith that is futile. Number five, you are still in your sins. You're not saints. You will not be sustained by Jesus. You've not been fully enriched with every gift in every way. You've not been guaranteed that what God began in you, He will faithfully complete. You've not been given an understanding into spiritual things by the Holy Spirit. We are not the corporate dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we are not individually the dwelling place or temple of the Holy Spirit. Because we're just still dead in our trespasses. If the tomb is still occupied. If the tomb is still occupied, the dead have simply perished. The word there that Paul writes is asleep in verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The word asleep is just a figurative word to reference dead. It's just an expression that means dead. The word perished means ruined. And notice here that he is referencing that it is those in Christ who have fallen asleep. 
If the tomb is still occupied, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, or we could interpret that to say as believers in Jesus, as people who have put their faith in Jesus, they have just simply perished. Their bodies have just come to ruin. In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul uses the word perish twice there and says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy, there's the other word, perish, the wisdom of the wise and the discerning, or discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Here Paul says, look, that's not true if the tomb is still occupied. If the tomb is still occupied, if Jesus is still in the grave, then God's not going to destroy the discernment of the discerning. Second set of implications Paul gives is essentially to say, everything I have written to you is false. The last one in this set that he writes is that you and I should be most pitied. If in Christ, verse 19, we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. Just just think through for a moment why that is. And we've kind of already referenced and touched upon it a little bit. um, Because we all got up this morning and didn't just stay in our PJs. We didn't just take another few hours of a slow start to a weekend that always goes way too quickly. To whatever degree you individually have contributed, there's been generosity given. So you have, you have given to the Lord, or let's just act like he's not actually there. You've given to this organization money that you could have kept for yourself. Your kids could have gotten better Christmas gifts. You might have been able to afford that upgrade on the car. Your house could be a little larger. I mean, we can just play out all of these implications all along the way if... The tomb is still occupied. You and I are to be the most pitied. To quote the great cinematic classic starring Jim Carrey, you and I are one pathetic loser. Okay, Dumb and Dumber may not be a great cinematic classic, but the point stands. And the quote I think's apt. If the tomb is still occupied... All we're doing is wasting our time. And we should be pitied for doing so. In verse 20, Paul makes a transition. I want to just point out the transition and then we're actually going to skip over it. We'll come back to it next week. But the transition there, right in the very first set of words, you can see and we can identify. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The tomb is not still occupied. He is risen just as he said he would. And then Paul launches into all of the implications that are true now because of that. But he bookends this conversation about the resurrection in this set by returning to, again, the hypothetical question of, If the tomb is still occupied, 
And so jump down to verse 28 with me, excuse me, 29, and Paul is going to give us the three remaining implications that arise out of this understanding. If the tomb is still occupied, then cultural echoes are insignificant. Now, you're not going to actually find any one of those words in the verse. And quite frankly, verses 29, verse 29 is a really difficult verse. I know I keep saying that. 1 Corinthians has a lot of difficult verses in it. Um, One commentary that I was looking at this past week said that there are some 200 different interpretations for this verse. Um, So as we walk through each of them one by one, um, we're going to hopefully, no, I'm kidding. Um, Let's actually just read the verse. Like Mikey's thinking he's not going to make it to the curtain call this afternoon. He's going to have to leave because we're going to be going. No, we're not going to do that. Um, But here's what Paul says. If the tomb is still occupied, these cultural echoes are insignificant. And he writes, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, what is going on there? I'm going to give you the two main interpretations and then briefly explain why I land on the one that I land on. The one, one of the main primary interpretations here is that when Paul uses the word dead in reference to being baptized on behalf of the dead, he's talking about the spiritually dead. So what he's doing then, and where that line of of interpretation goes, is that those who were spiritually dead, that placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, are made alive in Christ, and then are baptized. And that's kind of where that line of reasoning goes. And then you don't really have any difficulty there with this idea of vicarious baptism. It's It's a bit of a challenging concept to try to navigate through. Um, What works against that interpretation, in my opinion, and this is going to be something I hold really, really loosely, um, is that up to this point in the text, every time Paul has used the word dead, he just literally means dead. He's not talking about spiritual death. He's talking about no longer breathing, body in the grave, dead. So I just, I I find it a little difficult that all of a sudden we're going to jump to a spiritual death in, in interpreting how this word goes. So then that leads us to the other main idea, that it's, this, it's, it's a statement of vicarious baptism, um, which would be just being baptized on behalf of somebody else. And, and there, there certainly is trouble there as well. And I'll just say that. I'll, I'll, I'll offer these kind of qualifiers to this. Um, to conclude that Paul is okay with believers being baptized on behalf of people who have died would be to ignore every other main primary instruction that has ever been given about baptism throughout the New Testament. Every time somebody is baptized, every time there's an instruction given about baptism, it's always somebody who is alive. Not just spiritually alive, although that is true, but living and breathing alive. The opposite of not breathing, body in the grave, dead. Paul doesn't seem to make any statement here of correction, which is a difficulty. But he also doesn't make any statement of commendation. So here's what I would submit to you is going on here. 
And I, I think there's, I might be reading too much into it, but I think there's some significance in the word Paul uses there. Why do, or what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Anytime Paul's referencing people in the church, he seems to do so by referencing them as brothers and sisters. Here, in the beginning of our passage this morning, in verse 12, he talks about how can some of you say, so there appears he's taking a a little kind of subsection, a, a small slice of these group of people, of this group of people. And asking, like, how how are you guys kind of missing the resurrection instruction? And here he seems to be even further away from the body because now he's just talking about some people. And so here would be what I think is going on. I think there existed some measure of this vicarious baptism that happened in the culture at large in Corinth. And you can, you can find some scholarly historical evidence to support that. I'd like to believe I'm not just pulling this out of thin air and making up what I'm telling you. There, there's, some, there's some data that can get put to this. What I think he's doing is I think he's just asking them this question that asks them to just observe what I will call cultural echoes. Look, if the tomb is still occupied, then all of these echoes you have and we have in culture of the gospel actually mean nothing. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we read and learn that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man, but in such a way that they they can't find it in and of themselves. And if we just allow ourselves to be students of culture think we can see and observe in film, in art, in literature, and all of these other mediums that exist, echoes of unconditional love, echoes of the heroic, echoes of good conquering over evil. And we, we, we should never make too much of those echoes. Because in and of themselves, that's just kind of all they are. There's, there's something that, that just kind of that cries out in, in kind of the soul of humanity to say there's something more. And as we come to the scriptures, we find out that that more has a name and his name is Jesus. And so like the, 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 the tropes of evil versus good that we're going to, that could just kind of, be mesmerized by when I go and see Star Wars here in a couple weeks with my dad. Like there's echoes there of the gospel. Now we can't overplay those echoes. And I'm not at all indicating that the Star Wars franchise, and now it's Disney, has any plans to communicate the gospel. But there's echoes there. I think that's Paul, what Paul's doing. I'm most certainly not going to die for that. But I think that's what he's doing. And he just says, look, these cultural echoes of yours, they're insignificant if the tomb is still occupied. Next, he says this, that personal suffering and sacrifice is pointless. And he says this in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. 
which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about how his life is just thrown down for the sake of the gospel. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? Here the idea is that personal suffering and sacrifice is pointless. His question, what do I gain? He's like, what, what, what is the advantage? What's the benefit? If I'm out here slaving away, fighting beasts in Ephesus, if the tomb is still occupied. The answer to the question is there is no gain. Now Jesus asks a similar question from the complete opposite perspective. And in Matthew 16, Jesus says this, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? It's the same question from two completely different perspectives. If the gospel's not true, personal suffering and sacrifice are pointless. Lastly, the tenth point Paul makes is that hedonism makes perfect sense. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Time not spent indulging in every desire you have and every sinful pleasure there may be is time you have wasted if the tomb is still occupied. You go do you. And you do with all of the the enthusiasm and the passion and the pervasiveness that you can go and do you. Because if this tomb is still occupied, that worldview is actually what makes perfect sense. Because you got one life, and you might as well live it to the full, and you might as well indulge in everything that you could conceivably indulge in, so you just go do you, and that worldview makes sense if the tomb is not occupied. Now here's another one of those cultural echoes that we see, however, come out in culture, is that the people that do live like that often find their lives are train wrecks at the end. They've destroyed it. They've destroyed relationships. They've destroyed their bodies. They've destroyed all sorts of things and have left a wake of destruction and brokenness in their path. But if this life is all that there is, you and I should just spend all the time we can chasing all of the pleasure we can. That's actually what the Israelites found themselves doing. And in the quotation that Paul gives there, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, he's quoting out of Isaiah. Similar time period to what we looked at the last time we spent some time in Isaiah. There, chapter 26 is where we were. Here it's chapter 22. And what's going on is that the Lord gave instruction to the people in Israel, to the Israelites, to the Jews, and said, look, you need to weep and mourn. Put on sackcloth and repent for your actions. And here we're told in Isaiah 22 that the people responded... By not obeying the Lord, but by throwing parties. And by saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
And so if the tomb is still occupied, hedonism makes perfect sense. But here Paul lands and finishes up with three commands. The first is do not be deceived. Paul writes this in in such a way that what he is indicating is do not let yourself be deceived. Do not let somebody convince you otherwise. Bad company corrupts good morals. My mama used to say, if you walk with a skunk, you're going to smell like a skunk. If you and I spend unguarded time with those who discount the resurrection, or even more broadly, the gospel, we're going to find ourselves moving in that direction. We're going to be the opposite of the Psalm 1 man or woman who does not delight themselves in the word of God, but, but walks in the way of the sinners and stands in the company of those who reject God and sits in the seat of scoffers. Bad company corrupts good character or good morals. Now, I use the words unguarded time. If we spend unguarded time, we will find ourselves thinking. And, it's, and I use those words because you and I are called to spend time with people who don't know the gospel. We're called to spend time with people who, who may openly reject the claims of the gospel, and we're called to do so to be salt and light to them, to, to be ones that have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. But it, it needs to be time spent guarded, not unguarded. The first command Paul gives us is do not be deceived or do not let yourself be deceived. Corinthian church, Waynesboro Grace, be careful who you hang out with. Be careful what influences you allow yourself to be under. The second, wake up if you are deceived. There he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. The way he writes the word or the verb wake up is come to your senses again. There he's indicating, look, if you have been deceived, if you let yourself be deceived, wake up. And thirdly, do not go on sinning or sin no more. If the tomb is still occupied, there are tremendous implications for you and I. What I would encourage you to do this week is take that list of ten things and consider each one of those from the perspective of the tomb being empty. Put the negative in a different place. So I'll give you an example. If the tomb is empty, then preaching is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. You are not still in your sins. Walk through the list and just, just think through then the implications from that perspective. And as the band comes up to lead us in a final song, I just want to read to you words that Jesus spoke to Thomas. The dude gets a bit of a bad rap being called Doubting Thomas. But Jesus was gracious to him. He did doubt, but he wasn't the only one that doubted. For whatever reason, he's the only one that gets that nickname. But after Jesus then appeared, 
eight days later to Thomas and said, hey, put your hand in my side. Put your finger in my hands. Thomas said, I believe, my Lord, my God. And Jesus said this, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have seen or have not seen and yet believed. That's you and I. That's you and I. The grave is empty. He is risen just as he said he would. Let's raise our voices and sing these truths as we close.